Hey listeners, this week we're very excited to bring you a special guest. During the week, Lyndon and I had the absolute pleasure of sitting down with Charlie Bressler. Charlie is over in the States and he's the co-founder of an organization called The Life You Can Save, which is a meta charity that's based off Peter Singer's 2009 book called The Life You Can Save, How to Do Your Part to End World Poverty. Essentially, what the organization does is it evaluates effective charities and it advises on how one can do the most good with their donated dollars. And when Charlie first came across this book, he reached out to Peter and wanted to have an impact and wanted to take part. And so he and his wife sunk in a significant portion of their income and savings um, to co-found the organization and really get it off the ground. Today, the life you can save shifts around millions of dollars a year and undoubtedly has an influence on millions of people's lives um, all over the world, especially in developing nations. So it really is no surprise why we wanted to have a chat with Charlie. And again, we were absolutely flattered and stoked to have him on to pick his brain about all things effective altruism, his journey from psychology to the for-profit sector to the non-profit sector, his moral underpinnings, and just generally what we need to do to improve the world. So again, we really hope you enjoy this one. We were stoked to have the chat and um, please leave some feedback and enjoy it. Thank you. Welcome to The Conduit, a platform where we try to bring important ideas to the modern world. Our focal points are rationality, morality and progress. My name is Lyndon. I work in mental health case management. I study artificial intelligence and you can find my writing at Therefore Think. I'm Josh. I work in government. I volunteer at a drug reform organisation and I'm interested in effective altruism. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. Okay, so welcome everyone. Welcome back to The Conduit. Today we are very, very delighted and a little bit nervous to have uh, our very important guest, Charlie Bressler, on. Charlie is a co-founder of The Life You Can Save. Um, Charlie, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Happy New Year. Hopefully yeah. it's a better, a better year for everyone than the previous one. Fingers, fingers crossed. Um, so I guess we'd just like to start with just a bit of an introduction about yourself. We, as I said, we'll give you an introduction in a pre-recording, but is there anything else that you really wanted to draw anyone's attention to about yourself? Well, I, d- I don't know what you will say in the pre-recording, but um, I encountered Peter Singer and the, his ideas really for the first time in 2012 when I read Practical Ethics and then I read The Life You Can Save. And I was quite taken with the simplicity of the idea from my point of view. And it catalyzed uh, me to, and my wife to do things that we'd always plan on doing. In this case, namely doing two things. One, uh, giving away a substantial amount of money that we were lucky to have um, because of work that I sort of stumbled into, I guess we'll get that. And then uh, the other is to have the opportunity to volunteer for many years now uh, to help work with Peter and the team to promote the idea of giving in a high impact, cost-effective way, and specifically the nonprofits that we recommend. So um, I guess that's what I would like people to know uh, most significantly. Yeah, I really I really like your story, Charlie. And so We'll set. We'll try and set a bit of context here for listeners. How old were you, roughly, if you don't mind me asking, when you say you came across these ideas in roundabout two thousand nine, two thousand ten? 
Okay, so I'm 72 now, and it was nine years ago, approximately. So I think that makes you're about 21. (laughs) Yeah, right. I was about 63. And uh, I had stepped down from a significant role in business uh, five years before that and had started doing some volunteer consulting with some really interesting people on projects they were involved in. When I read The Life You Can Save on vacation, I believe in 2012. Bit of irony in that. <laughs> yeah, I was in Hawaii of all places. And okay, so maybe we'll, yeah, we'll start by going backwards first. You were initially in psychology and clinical psychology, if I'm correct, social and clinical psychology. Well, I guess it, it depends what you call initially. I mean, I, <laughs> uh, I, after I got a, out of undergraduate school, I got a master's in history and education, and I taught history for three years, secondary school history. And after that, I, I say I dropped out for a number of years, seven years, and played a tremendous amount of tennis and managed the tennis club and did a bunch of things and then kind of wandered into community mental health. And uh, after spending a bit of time in community mental health, I went to graduate school and got a PhD in social and clinical psychology and had a great experience in graduate school and then took a job as director of behavioral medicine at a graduate school in California. So now just to put a time frame around that, um, we moved to California in 1985 when my son was one. And we lived in Fresno, California for seven years before moving to the Bay Area. So my that was my experience in, in psychology was as a graduate professor for seven years and community mental health before that. So two, two quick comments slash questions. One is tennis the fountain of your evident youth, and <laughs> two. No, I think it's. I don't think it's tennis. Uh, it's long distance running. Um, so many years ago, I really stopped playing competitive tennis and took up uh, distance running. And then when I started to develop uh, disc problems, I started doing distance walking. And so I just walk a lot. Um, I don't know how young I feel, but um, definitely have been athletic my entire life and tennis was a particular interest for a while but i people always say do you miss it and i have to say i don't particularly miss it yeah there's just you know way too many forehands and backhands that you miss wide for it to be enjoyable sometimes (laughs) mine usually went in the net but that's (laughs) (laughs) but yeah that's yeah preaching to uh the converted a little bit here again as josh and i were saying sort of to you before we started recording coming from health and fitness backgrounds we are big mm-hmm. proponents of yeah, health and exercise. The other thing I was going to comment on is while, you know, say reading of, of Peter's work, among others, I'm sure, um, around that time you spoke about may have been a more local catalyst. It does sound like you had sort of interest in these ideas and even being drawn to clinical psychology initially or at some point throughout your life, you were evidently concerned with the conscious experience of humans like welfare and trying to help people, whether it be through interventions, educational or otherwise. Definitely. I I, sort of put again, a historical context on it. I was in university between 1967 and 71 undergraduate school. So in the United States, that was really the height of the Vietnam war and the anti-war movement. And my sophomore year in university, I was in New York and I became 
very much an activist in the anti-war movement, a little bit in the civil rights movement, um, and hung out with a bunch of uh, left-wing history students who were in graduate school and really became enamored of ideas that are really no longer in the mainstream at all, not that they were ever in the mainstream in the United States, but more so uh, I read a lot of Noam Chomsky and became really attracted to um, anarcho-syndicalist ideas and uh, George Orwell. So I was a fairly, I was kind of a atypical, uh, I would say anti-communist leftist. So quite far left, but on the anti-big C communist, kind of like Orwell himself, who's a hero of mine, uh, if I have some. And uh, so I was always interested in doing something systemically about wealth inequality, both um, worldwide as well as in America, and was particularly focused on the destructive effects of American imperialism outside of the United States. Only recently, are we really aware of the destructiveness as a nation um, of American policy because it's now come home and we see uh, a lot more of the kind of politics um, of repression that the United States supported overseas. Now we see it uh, domestically as well with the attack on voting rights, et cetera. So I don't think reading Peter Singer was in any way an epiphany for me. It was, I would say much more of a catalyst like kicking me in the butt like Diana too, and who, who I grew up with, by the way, we dated since high school, my wife and I, um, you know, just like you better do something. You were lucky enough to make this money that you never intended to have. And you ought to do something more than just support yourselves and your family with it. And so, um, but it wasn't, it wasn't like Peter said anything that I hadn't been thinking about really before. Right. He I guess said it more I'm... eloquently than I've ever expressed it in a much more coherent philosophy, but still it was pretty much what I've been thinking. Yeah, he's got a he's got a way with concise arguments. Peter does for sure. Um, mm-hmm. I guess one thing that also strikes me and us about your story uh, is how you didn't just succumb to the urge of going straight into the nonprofit sector, or a bit about that journey. Because one thing William McCaskill writes about is the potential benefit of starting in the for-profit sector, even if you do have these really deep altruistic altruistic endeavors or urges it might actually be better in the long run to start in the for-profit and then shift into the non-profit. And you've kind of done that perhaps unconsciously or just by virtue of accident. Um, but yeah. can you tell us about that transition? So in all deference to Will and Peter, it, Peter likes to say, well, you were earning to give, Charlie. And I say, well, that's really kind of bullshit because I really wasn't earning to give. I just sort of fell into business. I was, I'd never taken a business course. I obviously as a left-wing democratic socialist, I wasn't really even interested in business. Um, It was actually sort of a big deal in my family when I decided to go into join this company because my wife, my mother, people didn't really approve of it and they were quite taken aback. Um, So I wasn't earning to give in any conscious way. Uh, I just following kind of the inertia of being recruited into this company and being at a change point in my life, I was getting to a point where I really didn't want to really teach clinical psychologists anymore. So, and I wanted to move and moving to San Francisco meant doing something different. Um, as far as starting in the, in the for-profit world, I think I learned a lot about running an organization, developing an organization, 
management of human resources. I don't mean in a traditional HR sense, but but really working with people, what leadership is all about, um, making lots of mistakes, doing some things well and correcting mistakes, all of that in the for-profit world uh, where there's a lot of pressure uh, from uh, my boss and from shareholders and and other uh, colleagues. And so I think it's been a great experience for me. And I think that one of the things about the life you can save itself as an organization is it's very business oriented. We have a we have a, a a very keen sense of return on investment, and uh, I think we're focused very much on making sure that we're using our money wisely. And a lot of times, even though I didn't get along very well with the CEO and my boss, um, I hear his voice in my ears about payroll matters and other kinds of things, and. I think I've passed some of that along to Ricard and Stacy, um, our, our executive director and, and deputy director now. And so, um, yeah, it was a great experience. The fact that Diane and I ended up with some money that we could then use to give away uh, and still live a very nice lifestyle, I might point out, it's not like we're suffering here. Um, then I think that was, the biggest value was uh, was a the experiences in business and learning how to manage, if you will, and the other was just having this surplus money to be used. Because one of the challenges for Life You Can Save has been not only raising money for our recommended nonprofits, but raising money to operate the Life You Can Save itself and scale. And so the fact that Diane and I were lucky enough to be able to kickstart that, and now Peter joining in and giving away five hundred thousand dollars. To help us uh, is very uh, is is also very helpful. So Peter didn't earn to give, but he won that prize, and and that was great. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of really good stuff in there, and going all the way back to your comments on Orwell, I was about to throw out the script and <laughs> yeah. just start ripping. Deep dive on Orwell. <laughs> we'll um we'll try and follow somewhat of a linear trajectory here. I think one of the f- things that you said that was really interesting there is you know say you were earning. And you didn't necessarily have that idea of to give at the same time. Like you weren't, you know, wasn't money wasn't coming in from one side and, and going out the other necessarily. But it sounds like what you did, and this is something Josh and I speak a lot about, is at least kept a bit of a cap on that hedonic treadmill and say like you didn't just waste, you know, quote unquote, that money on a lot of superfluous spending. You treated money with some value and you did just let it accumulate somewhat it sounds that so you could put it to good use and not just address the you know the constant nagging of like living inside a human mind yeah well i think having come of age as a leftist and being interested in trying to do something about poverty made it very unlikely we would get completely caught up in the hedonic treadmill so just because i was making a lot of money some years didn't mean we needed to be spending a lot of money so um, we did send one of our two children to private university, which was very expensive. My son went to University of California, Berkeley. So that was less expensive, but, um, but we didn't, we, we lived really well. We still do by worldwide standards or even American working class standards, but we don't live like rich people by any means. And, but that isn't really as much Peter Singer and all of the influence of effective altruism as it is just my training practically from my childhood, but certainly as I grew up politically. And uh, so conspicuous consumption, hedonic treadmill, um, 
yeah, it was something that Diane and I were very aware of. And being married to someone who's extremely careful about money and feels guilty if she spends too much on going out to dinner or too much. I mean, I remember once Diana bought a dress. I can't remember the dollars, but I'll just, she bought a dress and I think it was like $70. And, you know, for somebody who was, you know, married to a mid-cap corporate president, public company, spending $70 wasn't a lot, but I remember she felt really guilty about spending $70. And this was before either one of us had ever read Peter Singer. So uh, yeah, again, a lot of this work with Peter was really natural for us. Um, we still have a long way to go. We could give away more money. We hope to. Uh, we could be more modest. We could have a smaller environmental footprint. We could live more like my son, who is currently living uh, in a cabin that he and his partner built uh, with their daughter that's probably about, I don't know, 250 square feet. They have no running water. They have no electricity except that they get from solar. I mean, so there are, there are people in our family who are living much more modest. He's an organic farmer. So anyway, a little bit of rambling on. But again, um, I don't, these ideas don't come from effective altruism. And in fact, I guess this may be a little bit out of place here, but I don't even consider myself at all to be an effective altruist. I like to consider myself to be an effective hedonist. Um, and that's a term that I, I like to use. And I've joked around with Peter about effective hedonist because uh, I don't see self-sacrifice. Maybe it's because I'm a psychologist. I don't see sacrifice as a big part of the way people behave. Um, I think that Diana and I are trying to be the kind of uh, role models for our kids and our family and, uh, for our community that we'd like to be, and we have a long way to go. But um, so whatever we're doing in terms of the work we do uh, or the money we give away, we really feel like we're doing it for ourselves and it gives us pleasure. And I, as I wrote an article fairly recently that I think is going to be published in Australia in the next month or so called, I take my pleasure seriously. I mean, I, I definitely think of myself as somebody who likes to have a good time in that sense. I might be more Australian than American. And uh, I certainly don't see myself self in a self-sacrificing kind of way. Yeah, I love I love all that, and we'll uh, we'll definitely link link everything we can in the notes. Um, but just around the, you know, having the instinctual urge around these ideas, and then say like post hoc adding on top the philosophical ideas. I think that's definitely the experience that I had as well. I'd always really cared about people, cared about suffering and alleviating suffering where possible. And, you know, years ago, before I'd even heard of effective altruism, I would just like do things that weren't really effective, go around picking up rubbish or the, the homeless problem in Melbourne isn't that bad. And they're actually living comparatively to world standards pretty good. And so I would go around handing out food that I'd made at home. And a lot of the time they'd actually um, reject it because <laughs> they, they had a, an, a, not an abundance of resources, but they weren't really like suffering on the level that people typically think of um so yeah i i'm just curious about um your other philosophies that guide your actions as well because obviously you've mentioned a couple of times that it hasn't been necessarily the the philosophical ideas that have changed the course of your life um yeah what what other philosophies do you try and live by if if uh, you can put that into words well definitely secular so i don't i don't um have too much of a religious orientation, but I do think that having a sort of egalitarian instinct as a base um, is an important, I don't know if I'd call it a philosophy, but I do think that 
we'd all, a lot of us would like to live in a world where philanthropy wouldn't be necessary so that people would be uh, getting what they need. And by what they need, I mean, I mean that they would have basic healthcare, housing, and they wouldn't be living in a state of food insecurity. Um, that seems to me something we would like to have everybody have an opportunity to get. And if they don't avail themselves of that opportunity, they would still um, be able to live uh, decently. Um, so maybe we wouldn't be classless in how people live, but everybody would have the basics if they, you know, if they wanted to. Um, so I think philosophically that if you call that a philosophy, that's important. As far as utilitarianism or consequentialism, I don't really think about um, philosophy in that way very much, but Peter's, what he writes resonates with me. And I think that, um, I guess I would say, even though I don't take it as far as Peter, probably a push to the wall. Um, I think that what Peter writes is a good first approximation of how we should be guided in looking to uh, create, do the most good for as many people as we possibly can, and to look at outcomes in terms of their their impact on well-being. And so I don't think I have a complex philosophy. My, um, my early interest philosophically, I guess, was before, was 19th century would have been, you know, Marx's early writings before Capital, like the economic and philosophical manuscripts. Um, and then the odd social thinker like Orwell, et cetera. But I, I don't, I'm not, I think a lot, but I don't think of myself as a particularly deep thinker or, or necessarily a systematic thinker. That's actually uh, that's really comforting to hear because I guess we probably <laughs> tend to overthink these philosophical ideas, but it's, uh, it's nice to see someone in the space that just takes a very intuitive approach, but still has like a pretty large um, effect on the world in, in a good manner. Yeah, I think something else that I really like about what you said there, Charlie, is you have... I guess in the way that Josh and I use the term philosophy or philosophizing, it, it is that more loosely defined sort of just continual, like updating based on ideas and experiences within the world. Like you, you have sort of, I guess what I, I'll speak for myself. I, I try to recommend, or I believe we should live by some sort of like disloyalty to, to philosophical ideas, you know, take on the recommendations of someone like Peter, but then also, you know, contrast that with conversations with your wife and your family and your friends and community and, and come up with this amalgamation or, you know, belief of your own based on a range of sources. Like, I, I don't think you want to sort of be the kind of person that shoots their hand up in the air and says, yeah, I'm a, you know, a non-secular, you know, utilitarian consequentialist. And I always live by that standard, you know, rigidly. Is that something you would sort of, and I wasn't saying, sorry, saying that about yourself. I'm just saying that like, we want to be careful of shoving ourselves into to categories or camps or labeling ourselves because that can be somewhat restricting at times. I, yeah, I definitely agree. And I admire people that are systematic thinkers, uh, but at the same time, flexible. And I would put Peter in that group of people, one of the things Peter often says is, well, if you dis disagree with me, I'm all ears. Just try to convince me that I'm wrong. Um, but I, you know, I've, I've sort of well beyond uh, at this stage in my life thinking that I'm going to develop a systematic philosophy. I mean, I grew up, as I indicated, pretty strongly believing that I would participate with a bunch of people 
who would change the world and we would really create a world uh, that wouldn't need philanthropy. And I was disabused of that notion by the mid 70s, 1970s, I realized that really wasn't the agenda probably for the foreseeable future. And as time has gone on, at least in America and Western Europe, it's becoming clearer and clearer that we're fighting to maintain some semblance of a social safety net. So having, and, and democracy even, at least in the United States. Um, so I have been disillusioned about, some, about the likelihood of some of the things that I used to believe could happen. So now I think of myself as more pragmatic, more willing to work with people who have different ideas than my own, as long as we're working on a common purpose. And uh, to me, that common purpose can be summarized really simply as providing um, adequate housing, food security, and adequate health care, and not dying of preventable illnesses worldwide. I mean, that in and of itself is a huge undertaking and doesn't require sophisticated philosophical thinking to promote. Perfect. Let's transition into the life you can save more specifically. Um, yeah. Did you want to give a bit of a broad overview of what the life you can save actually does operationally? Because I guess it's not a typical ch uh, charity as people might think of it. Um, it's a very cool innovation. Um, so yeah, feel free to speak freely on that. Well, we think of ourselves, we sometimes refer to ourselves as a meta charity in the sense that we are not doing direct service in Sub-Saharan Africa or South Asia. We're not handing out nutrition. We're not saving children from diarrhea. We're not performing fistula surgeries. What we're doing is two things, really. We're promoting the idea of cost-effective, high-impact giving as widely as we can. And one of our main vehicles to do that is Peter's book, The Life You Can Save, which is available in audiobook and ebook on our website. And I'm sure you'll talk about that. That's the paperback and you can download it for free on the website, thelifeyoucansave.org. So promoting that book as widely as possible. We want millions of people to be able to have access to that book and be exposed to those ideas, which for some people can be life-changing and, and alter their behavior quite significantly. Then the other thing we're doing is curating a list of really great examples of charities that are doing amazing work in Sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia among people who are living on less than $1.90 US, living in extreme poverty. And some of these, some of these nonprofits are saving lives. Some of these nonprofits are empowering uh, people to pull themselves out of extreme poverty. Some of them are providing health interventions that restore sight. There's a variety. We've now added some climate change uh, advocacy organizations to uh, help fight um, man-made climate change. Um, and so um, the Life You Can Save is this organization that's promoting ideas, the specific ideas of Peter Singer and related content, hopefully in more and more digestible form and easy to view and, and see. And then the idea of specific examples where people can donate their money. And our goal is to reach uh, millions and millions of people over the years and to move hundreds of millions of dollars or even billions of dollars along with great organizations like GiveWell. Um, we believe that we sort of sit in the United States ecosystem of uh, between GiveWell and Charity Navigator with GiveWell occupying a very specific 
heavily uh, empirically re uh, research-oriented niche uh, that appeals largely to finance people and tech people and gets a lot of money from, uh, from those people to give to these few very effective charities that they support. And then with Charity Navigator at the other end of the spectrum, just promoting the idea of giving, um, looking at administrative efficiency, but not really honed in on impact and cost effectiveness and certainly not honed in on helping people in the developing world. So we sit in the middle and we believe the niche for the life you can save is enormous, that we should be reaching uh, virtually everybody that doesn't fall, doesn't fall into the GiveWell niche, although we overlap a little bit with GiveWell, well, uh, they're, they're much better funded uh, because of these very wealthy people that are supporting them. So that's what the Life You Can Save does. And I think if you go to the website, you get a really good idea just on the homepage and then by exploring the best charities of kind of the work, not the kind of the work that we're doing and plan to continue to do. And the biggest challenge in front of us, I think, is scaling our impact, which requires more money for the life you can save uh, in order to hire more staff and do more marketing and develop more partnerships. Um, and the other challenge is making what you what we call the girl in the pond, if you will, more real for people. So Peter tells a story, as I think a lot of your listeners know, of people walking by a pond and seeing a girl drowning. And they know that if they jump in and save the girl, they'll ruin an expensive suit of clothes and they might be late for work. Um, but everybody would do that. Virtually everybody would jump in, ruin their clothes. But meanwhile, there's 5.3 million children dying of largely preventable illnesses or uh, at least curable, if not preventable illnesses every year. And they're all just like that girl in the pond, but they're not sitting in front of us. So one of the things that the whole movement needs to do a better job of, including the life you can save, is making that experience of being in the uh, in front of the pond more real for people. There's a famous joke, I'm writing about it for a couple of weeks for the newsletter, but there's an old comedian in the United States named Jack Benny. And there's a funny story he tell, or people tell about him where he's walking down the street and he's held up by a gunman. And the gunman says, your money or your life. And he's just standing there. And the gunman says, hurry. And he says, don't rush me, I'm thinking. <laughs> and so I think it's a little bit interesting to think about how we're all kind of doing that, even though we think Jack Benny was an idiot to be thinking about whether he wanted to save his life. We're all sitting around thinking about whether we want to jump in that pond or help save those 5.3 million people. But we're making, even according to our own value systems, we're constantly making irrational choices and not doing what we, our own values would tell us we should do. And I've certainly been guilty of that so much in my own life. And so we're trying to get people to become aware of those irrational choices they're making and, and make those lives they can save more real than just an abstraction. So I like to tell jokes like the Jack Benny joke. No, that that's fantastic, and that that actually uh, touches on something that I was thinking about yesterday. I'm, I'm trying to write a a piece that will overview a lot of this sort of conversation to accompany it, um, and I was thinking about that that comment that people typically make about how like you can't be buried with your money, like so there's no point just accumulating it. And I sort of thought about the flip side of that is like, you can't be buried with your money, but other people will be buried without it. It's like poverty is the killer here. It's, you know, reducing educational outcomes, obviously like empowerment of women, just general ability of people to get 
themselves up into a place in life where they can then help themselves. And this, yeah, this accumulation of money that's going on in a lot of developed parts of the world is, it, it is a problem that we need to, to bring attention to. And like, like you said, we need to get the, you know, the drowning girl in the pond in front of people, so to speak. And, and that is part of what we're interested in, you know, with the name of the podcast here, the conduit about providing some means of transmuting and, you know, transferring messages to people that may not be other otherwise exposed to them. So do you potentially see, you know, a growing role of social media here among other things for, you know, helping these causes or, or how are you potentially thinking about, you know, technological innovation and just, you know, quote unquote, the future, how is that going to make things more difficult for the life you can saves objectives and how is it going to potentially help them? So just a word about my background. So in business, we were the main seller of what you might call in Australia, men's formal wear. Uh, suits and sport coats, things people used to wear to work that they don't wear to work so much. You're at work, I'm at work. None of us are wearing, can't, podcast people can't see, but we're, we're wearing different types of t-shirts for the most part. But in the old days, when I was working there, people were still wearing suits to work. And we were the biggest seller of suits in North America um, by far. And the way we got to do that was through traditional marketing, television, and radio and very simple message. We bought this suit at a department store for $400. You can buy that suit at the men's warehouse for the exact same suit for $250. Super simple message, really easy for people to understand. And we spent a fortune on marketing and that way we basically ran everybody else out of business because we had good prices and people couldn't really compete. And so we marketed our way into success. I had always thought that that kind of marketing, including outdoor marketing and traditional marketing could be something that we could use more at the life you can save. It's very expensive and you have to test your way into it. And advertising has gotten more and more diffuse as media has gotten more diffuse. So in comes social media and it appears to be seductive in the sense that everybody thinks, oh, it's not too expensive. You can get your word out there. You can even make all kinds of false claims and people will actually listen to them as if they're credible, which is the downside of what you were alluding to. And I will confess, I know nothing about social media. I don't, I used to use Instagram so people could see pictures of my family, my friends. I don't even use it anymore. I never opened my Facebook, uh, but somebody on the like you can say manages my Facebook account for me. Um, I, they also manage my LinkedIn account. I'm long past the point in my life where I'm looking for a job. In fact, I never was. So I was always fortunate that uh, the jobs just sort of came my way and there weren't that many of them that I needed. So I don't know anything about social media. My instinct is that social media has to really grab people in a way that it's very difficult to do. So my, I think that somehow it has to be stories uh, of people who are benefiting from the kind of work that our nonprofits do. Um, and they have to be really vivid and they have to capture people really quickly. But that's sort of currently. What's gonna happen in the future with technology and how all this will play out, I don't know. But 
I would think that there's got to be a role for um, allowing people to live the experience of a person who's getting a cash from Give Directly. A Give Directly is trying to promote those stories. Fred Hollows is trying to promote really wonderful videos showing uh, children getting their eyesight for the first time with their moms there and crying. And I think those kinds of things can really make an, a difference. But I'm not the right person to ask kind of, uh, I'm not a futurist and I don't really understand even what tech, what social media can do now. I think I would go back to the word seductive. I think it is seductive and I don't think so far it's really delivering for the effective altruist movement or the effective giving movement or whatever you want to call it. Um, but there is the opportunity for things to go viral, but um, are we all that? Okay. Um, somehow my computer, um, but I don't, I don't, let me just stop by saying, I think it's important that people who care about the things that the three of us care about, know everything there is to know about it and figure out clever ways to use it. But I'm not that person. Yeah. Um, a couple of things on that. I actually, near my house, there's like a bus stop advertisement that the life you can save is frequently on. So that, uh, that was very cool. We got that for free from, and yeah, and that's great. It would have been even better if it wasn't primarily during lockdowns, <laughs> yeah. but that, that's the kind of advertising that I'm used to from yeah. my previous career in Taylor clothing, where you have a bus shelter and you say, you know, Go to the men's warehouse, buy this suit for $290 or whatever. And, and I think that JC Deco that's doing that advertising for us mm -hmm. for free is fabulous. And we really appreciate that. I think if you can have campaigns like that on bus shelters, particularly when people are not like trying to get away from COVID, and, and you can have that in all kinds of places like where wealthy people go to work as well. So you get high net worth donors and working class donors and all, all different kinds of donors. And you have a campaign, not just one thing that says something, but people begin to say, oh, that's Michelle. Michelle is the little girl who couldn't see. And now she has her eyesight back. And that's Sandra. And she has her eyesight back, thanks to the Fred Hollows. And those kinds of things can be done. They're not high tech, but I think they can be of tremendous value. They also can be very expensive. And uh, I think donors need to recognize that they can get a significant return on their investment if they support organizations that do that kind of marketing. But it's not the kind of sexy thing that donors usually want to support. Yeah, this is great. This, because you sort of, you know, say you're more of a, a traditionalist when it comes to marketing strategy. And a lot of people are speaking about the benefits of social media and getting on it because, you know, now everyone's on it. But like you touched on, it's it's a low barrier to entry, but that that's not the only thing you need to consider. You do need to be considering impact. And I'll sort of link that in with something you were saying previously about um, like charity raiders, say like, you know, Give Well and Charity Navigator and The Life You Can Save, you know, that general camp of organizations. Often people thinking about giving, giving to a not-for-profit become very obsessed with cost efficiency and like how much is the CEO being paid? How much is being passed on to, you know, the recipients of this aid who actually need it yet something that, you know, the evidence, uh, sorry, the effective altruism community tends to think about more effectively is it's, it's impact per dollar. You know, when you go to 
when you go to, you know, the computer store, say to buy a laptop and you're tossing up between a PC and Apple, this is an example Will McCaskill gives his uh, book, Doing Good Better. He's like, you're not considering how much the CEO of Apple or Microsoft are being paid. What you care about is the product that is being delivered. And that's the same thing you should be doing when considering giving to charities. It's the product that is being delivered to the person on the other end who needs it, not how much the CEO of, you know, Against Malaria Foundation is being paid. Who happens to be a volunteer, but, yeah. <laughs> but in that particular case, but, but I agree with you wholeheartedly. And if Rob Mather was making, you know, $300,000 a year, but they were delivering these $2 insecticide treated bed nets as efficiently as they are, you know, I would not begrudge Rob the money. The fact that he can afford to volunteer because of his career in business or whatever, you know, that's great. Same with myself. I always, I volunteer too and did for eight years, but it Thank wasn't, that, by the I, way. Wasn't, I wasn't volunteering because I was sacrificing very much. I mean, we had all the things that we, we needed and I've been in Rob's home and it's a nice home and, you know, he, he has what he and his wife and kids need also. Um, but you might, if somebody really talented, like, uh, a really great marketing person who figured out how to unlock wealthy people's donations through traditional marketing, but they wanted to make $500,000 a year because they were making $3 million a year working for Saatchi and Saatchi or whatever. I could care less because mm-hmm. if they're going to allow the life you can save to spend, I'm going to make up a number, $20 million a year on its marketing and operations budget, paying these large salaries and spending a lot of marketing. But we were going to, on that $20 million, move $400 million to these effective charities. That would be a 40, uh, I'm sorry, a 20 multiple on our operational expenses. That's incredible. And who would look back and worry that the marketing head was making 500,000? There would be people who would do that. And they would say, why did you pay this person $500,000? Well, we paid them because we wanted to move $400 million these affected charities. And we weren't clever enough before we hired her to do that. But after hiring her and the ideas that she came on board with, we were able to do that. And the fact that she wanted to spend a lot of money, that was really her business. And uh, we don't care because we're spending $20 million a year to move $400 million. And who could argue with that? And that's really the mindset that I think Peter and Will and those of us who look at the numbers bring to this. And that's one of the problems that people have had with Charity Navigator. Um, I don't think GiveWell would have that problem. They're, they're too smart for that. But, but um, yeah, I don't think we're worried about that. And we have people, without getting into the numbers, we have staff member who makes more money than our executive director, because that's what it takes to hire that person. And that person was that important to us. And we have a fabulous executive director who didn't say, well, if we're going to pay that person that amount of money, then you better pay me more. Uh, both Stacy and Ricard are interested in the impact we have as an organization. Not they want to make an adequate living, but they don't. They're not particularly concerned about what they're making relative to anybody else. And I think that's great. And that's the kind of mindset that Peter has fostered uh, within our organization. And we hire the kind of people that have that mindset. But if we had to hire somebody who wanted to make a lot of money, but they had the ability to bring a huge return on that, so be it. Yeah, yeah couldn't be fantastic. More. You got to you got to attract good talent, even in nonprofit sectors. Um, so speaking about mindset, 
one thing we come and commonly come across is people that don't necessarily have the disposition to give. We're pretty easily swayed by these arguments and just in general want to do good. So it's really no hassle, as you've mentioned before, like no sacrifice to give. Um, but I think it was in one of your blog posts, you mentioned a parable um, about the starfish. So there's a girl putting back starfish that have washed up on shore and this older, wiser person comes up and says to the girl, you know, what are you doing that for? You're not going to save them all. And she very wisely states back, no, but I can save the ones that I put back in. Um, and I think that's a beautiful mindset to take. And I guess that's something we take. And the, the broader idea around that is um, the, the drop in the ocean argument is, is a false argument. It doesn't really hold. Um, so yeah, just around barriers to giving, what do you, what do you see as some of the common barriers to giving? And I guess, how can we get around that? Well, I don't have the key to get around it all the time. <laughs> Otherwise we'd have more money Damn. and we'd be, we would be growing. Um, but I think, as I said earlier, we need to make the experience of living in extreme poverty real and we need to make the joy of getting out of extreme poverty and all the things you can do in terms of saving your children, providing for them, not having them die of diarrhea or malaria. I mean, I think we have to make that whole thing more real for people. And the example of the starfish, by the way, that came, I got that. I don't know uh, even if that was my story at the life you can say, but a, a movie that had a big impact on me in regards to the work I'm doing now was The Constant Gardener. Um, which was a really great novel and a really good movie with Rachel Wise and Ralph Fiennes. And there's a point at which she's going off to do this really dangerous thing in Africa. And her husband says to her, what are you doing? You can't save all those people. And she says, I can't save one. And I think making that one or that 10 or that 100 more real for people is a huge challenge that we have. Um, most people can't walk away from that what they do is they walk away from it by saying, well, I have to save for my children's college, or I don't know what's gonna happen in retirement. What if my husband gets amyotropic lateral sclerosis and needs home care? I have to save all this money so that in case there's an emergency or I wanna buy an electric car and they're really expensive or a million different things, but a lot of it revolves around children, retirement, healthcare. These are for privileged people. For some people, they're just trying to survive day to day. And, you know, they tend to be fairly generous and they might just give, you know, $100. But for them, that's a lot more sacrifice than Diane and I giving $100,000 because that $100 could be the, a really significant to them in terms of almost whether they're eating properly or they're not eating properly. So, um, but I think, I think we have to get around people's walking away from that girl in the pond, walking away from saving that child's sight by helping them realize that as important as it is for them to save for college, as important as it is for them to be concerned about their retirement, they don't wanna walk away from the opportunity. So that means getting them to really believe that if I give money to Fred Hollows, that their $50 really will perform an eye surgery or their $100 or their $2 will really buy a bed net. I think we have to get people to believe and cut through the cynicism that, oh, some corrupt dictator or some corrupt charity is going to take that money. So we just have our work cut out for us. There are a whole bunch of 
excuses people give for not wanting to do it, many of which feel very legitimate. And then there are a bunch of reasons that people don't really think the money is going to do what you tell them it's going to do. And even for myself, Diane and I talk about this all the time. I don't really experience saving people's lives to the extent that probably the life you can save and even Diane and I have by the money we've given away. For example, 12 years ago, I think it was, I was walking down the street with a woman who now works for the life you can save, by the way. Um, and her name is Leslie. And Leslie and I were walking to work. She worked in the marketing department with me in San Francisco. And we were walking from the ferry to the office and she stepped in front of a streetcar. And I grabbed her and pulled her back. It's the only time in my life that I actually saved someone's life. But that's really a lot more vivid for me than probably the hundreds, if not thousands of lives, the work that I've done with our team or the money I've given away have saved. But it's very abstract. And we have to make the experience I had saving Leslie's life. And she and I joke about it now kind of all the time because she is the only person that I've ever seen who I've saved. I don't know how many lives you've saved where you've actually saved somebody directly, but we have to make that a real experience. And I think it really comes down to that. Would you really walk away from a child who was blind knowing that for 50 or hundred dollars, you could cure them of their blindness? Absolutely not. No, almost nobody would. And if they would, then you wouldn't want to talk to them anyway. Right. I mean, so we just, it's on us to make that experience live for them. So, would it be fair to say that you are a little more pro um, like affective emotional arguments rather than logical um, say at this stage or yeah. it's just multifaceted? I, th I think you've got it. I think you have to do both. I mean, I think people have to understand the numbers. They have to understand um, the value that an organization like the life you can save or against malaria foundation brings to the work they do and the cost effectiveness. But I think it, at the end of the day, that some emotional connection is the final common pathway in order to really unlocking philanthropy. You, you were involved in cognitive psychology and we do know this. If you tell somebody a piece of new information, just information, it can have a tremendous impact on their behavior. If you tell them information that they already had over and over and over again, for whatever reason they've chosen to ignore, it's not gonna have any impact at all. My wife tells the story of patients who would come into her office and their cholesterol would be sky high. And they divide into more than two groups, but let's just say for argument sake, they divide into two groups. One group, their cholesterol is sky high and Diana would say to them, tell me about your diet. And they'd say, well, doc, I eat a really good diet. I have." lots of red meat. Um, I have a piece of pie for dessert every day, blah, blah, blah. I eat like that. And Diana would say, but do you realize that, and she'd give them the typical lecture about cholesterol and fat and, and, and they'd go out. They didn't know that. They'd say, is that true? You know, I, they, I didn't know that. And they'd come back, no medication, you know, six months later and their cholesterol would be really low because they just radically changed their diet. On the other hand, there's a group of people Diana could give the same message to over and over again. And they know. It's like telling them smoking's bad for them. They come back, they're still smoking. They come back, their cholesterol's still high. Why is that? Because they already knew it and they've chosen for one reason or another to either not believe it or disregard it. And so we know that novel information 
can have new information that people didn't have can have a huge impact. So if nobody's ever accounted the kind of thinking that Peter Singer does, it can have an enormous impact on people. Or, But if they've constantly heard it and they've ignored it, it's probably much more important to get to them emotionally. Yeah, I think that's a great point where there's just, there's no single key that opens all locks. And for some people it is, sort of thought experiments or it is more the the peter singer you know syllogism logical argument and then sometimes it is just the the videos of children you know reacting ecstatically seeing for the first time and that is why i think i'm at least encouraged by the increasing amount of people sort of getting into this space and then just innovating just slightly and putting a new twist on things because yeah, maybe you can, maybe you can give someone photos and all the Fred Hollows sort of statistics, and they just look at it and go, "I just don't really care about a, a photo and the statistics." And then you say, "Oh well, imagine imagine fifty children lined up outside your door to the end of your street, and like if you would pretty much just go to the ATM and just hand every single one of them a fifty dollar note if you could." It's yeah, sometimes it just takes that multifaceted approach to get through to people. And I think that's that's really interesting to hear you speak about that given your background in psychology, as well as the pragmatic experiences you've had in leading an organization. I think in your conduit, having people who've had the experience of not being particularly philanthropic talk about their journey and how come they've decided to give away like they make $30,000 a year and they're giving away $2,000 a year, which is extraordinary. You know, how did that happen? Or we have a donor, I won't mention his name now, but, but having someone like that on the podcast who just gave us 1.2 million Australian dollars. And, you know, there are a lot of people who become philanthropic over time and getting people to understand how just these ordinary folks um, have become philanthropic from all these different uh, strata of society. But I'm always in awe of people who don't make very much money who give away 10% of their income um, because they think it's the right thing to do. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So what do you see as perhaps like the utopian vision for this space? Um, would, you, would, would the ideal situation in your mind be that just say every person in the developed world donates a certain percentage. And, and Peter lays out a, a pretty nice um, a framework of people in different income brackets of how much it's plausible for them to be donating. Or, or do you see it just as there should be massive um, state spending, governments should be doing a lot more for foreign aid. Um, you know, we, we, we can see that they don't do as much as say the UN recommends at the moment. Um, so there's, there's definitely a lot of space more for improvement in, in that sector where the government should, could and probably should be spending more. Or do you just see this as largely um, a decentralized problem where it's up to us as the masses to just, you know, shell out that one, five, 10% of our incomes? Um, yeah. Do you, do you have ideas around that? Well, in the short run, I do think it's up to organizations like The Life You Can Save and Give Well to go out there and try to raise more and more money. And for donors who support those organizations like the Life You Can Save to scale, I think that's, that's kind of the short medium run. In the long run, we need governments to step up, but we're in such a bad situation in the world now 
that were so far away from governments doing anything more than just that which helps their foreign policy. I mean, <laughs> government aid is really, whether it's USAID or DFID, I mean, they do a lot of good. I'm not saying that they don't do a lot of good, but in the long run, uh, aid is just another arm of intervention, if you will, for governments to have influence on the capital markets and raw materials, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I'm not being completely cynical. I wanna make sure that everyone realizes these organizations do do a lot of good like the World Bank, et cetera. But I think that we, we need to try to aim to have a world where philanthropy isn't going to be necessary. So I think that there should be always movement towards more equitable uh, governments, if you will, governments that are not just driven by uh, the self-interest of, of their own uh, elites. But in the meantime, I do think there's a tremendous amount that could be done by these billionaires like Harry Tuna and Dustin Moskowitz, who are already doing it. We have so many billionaires, even in Australia, I think we need to get to those people. I think we need to get to ordinary folks like all of us and get them more interested in actualizing their potential as donors. And I think everything needs to work together. But my utopian vision you know, is that we, uh, through having right-thinking population, electing right-thinking governments that we don't need philanthropy at all. Mm. That's my utopian vision. But that's the same vision I had when I was 20. And now I'm 72, so I don't know. Let me ask sort of a related question then. Do you think conversations regarding capitalism versus communism are distractions in this sort of area then? Like, is the, is the constant debate, or at least what it feels like in Australia sometimes, regarding wealth inequality within the nation... Is that a distraction when we probably should be thinking about it more on a global scale? Well, I don't, I don't see them as discussions about isms, capitalism, socialism, whatever, as not talking about it on a global scale. But I do think we should have more goals like the, like the goals in that the UN, like the SDGs and, uh, I think that we should have goals like no food insecurity, adequate health care, adequate housing that are really stripped of any ism being attached to them. Mm. But I also think we ought to be very cognizant of the problems that the isms have caused in the world. So if we're going to move forward, we understand that communism is associated with a lot of reduction in wealth inequality a la China, but it's also been responsible for many, many millions of unnecessary deaths through execution, through famine, et cetera, whether we're talking about Stalin or we're talking about Mao. Um, so communism is replete with all kinds of problems. Same with capitalism. We can look at all the imperialist wars that were fought by the United States, the United Kingdom, um, et cetera, and look at the destructiveness of those throughout the world, the United States' case, particularly in Southeast Asia's and South America and the kinds of governments that don't exist because they were opposed. But so we need to be aware of the structural limitations of each of the isms, but I think we ought to, for the, we ought to keep the goals as much devoid from isms as possible and think about what are we trying to accomplish and try to get people to say, okay, I wanna support 
these goals and I, what is the best way to do that? Um, but I'm not personally a big believer in what's sometimes called conscious capitalism. I don't believe that you can just make capitalists nicer people because uh, they're already, for the most part, nice people, but they don't do nice things necessarily because what they're trying to do is increase shareholder value. Mm -hmm. It's not that they're not nice people. It's that they have a different goal because that's their job. As Lenin said, when you run the state, you run the state. Therefore, you're just going to do whatever is necessary, whether you're running a corporation or you're running a communist government. So I don't think it's a matter of putting nice people or women in charge of corporations. I think about creating structural uh, solutions that the political system can, uh, I want to say, accommodate or actually promote. And I don't really know right now because we're looking at, in my mind, uh, in many ways, the biggest success has been capitalism's ability to produce wealth, and new, te new technology, but it's also at the same time a huge failure because it also promote, you know, leads to this inequality, this lack of ownership of their own natural resources of people in Africa, et cetera. And then the same as communism. You have tremendous achievements in terms of education and healthcare and housing in communism, but then you have all of this uh, horrible uh, things that have occurred during communism, uh, both in China and in the Soviet Union. So um, there's no getting away from it. We need something that we haven't seen yet if we're going to solve all these problems. But for the time being, I think we just keep the goal simple. Let's get people food. Let's get them housing. Let's get them health care and try to figure out eliminating as many of the obstacles as we can to doing that. Um, so I want to be pragmatic. And I also have to be cynical at this point about the likelihood that any ism right, that we know of as of now is going to accomplish these things. Hats off to communism for its ability to solve some social problems and criticize them for what they've done wrong. And hats off to capitalism for its tremendous ability to innovate technologically and create wealth. And too bad about the uh, all the deaths and, and terrible governments that have been supported in the wake of capitalism. So that's kind of my own personal point of view. That's um, Peter's more, Peter's a lot kinder about these things, I think. <laughs> but uh, I'm just speaking for myself. Wouldn't, wouldn't have thought of Peter to be kind. <laughs> um. Well, he tends to be, I think, not as cynical, I guess, or not as publicly yeah, cynical exactly. as I am. I can afford to be publicly cynical because not too many people are listening to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's got a he's got a reputation uh, for better yeah. or for worse, that's for sure. Um, so yeah, I, I really love what you said about getting away from the isms and I guess just abstract categorical ideas in general. And this is something that um, two developmental economists at, I, b I believe they're still at MIT, Esther and Abhijit, they write a lot about um, global. Um, yeah, I guess global welfare and foreign aid and something that I guess they're big on is just getting away from poverty in the abstract and just focusing on specific problems. Um, and I, I think that really is where the impact needs to be had. Um, and you mentioned Give Directly before. They're a very great organization. I love what they're doing. Um, first of all, like, what, what do you think about just that idea of just straight up cash transfers versus perhaps some of the more like capital or skill building charitable efforts um, and then potentially just some other cool charities that you've come across that that aren't highlighted by GiveWell like the popular Malaria Foundation or some others? Well, Village Enterprise is an example of what's called a graduation program that isn't 
supported by GiveWell that I think is a fabulous organization. So they do both cash transfers and education. And, and, and they've got some really nice RCT results, as does Give Directly. But the, but the, the advantage Give Directly has over Village Enterprises, it's so scalable. And it's completely and utterly democratic in the sense that you give the people the money and they let them do what they want. Mm. Okay. The thing about Village Enterprise that's nice is they're providing people not just with cash, but with, with education. So they're not asking for the cash back, but they're providing with education. And I think there's a there's tremendous value at this point for both organizations. So I think Give Village Enterprise is under-resourced relative to Give Directly. But on the other hand, I'm a big supporter of Give Directly um, because I think that it's democratic and I think it's completely scalable. So if you handed Michael Fay, the CEO of Give Directly, a billion dollars tomorrow, he'd be able to figure out how to use it and get cash where it's needed. If you handed a billion dollars to Village Enterprise tomorrow, it'd be more challenging for Diane Calvi, who's their fabulous executive director, CEO, to, to scale up but she wants to scale through other organizations. So Village Enterprises is an organization that's kind of under known. Another one that I actually think is tremendous is Development Media International, which is not tax deductible, I think, in Australia, just for your viewers. So you have to figure out a way to give through the life you can save to get the money, I think, to, to DMI uh, if you want a tax deduction. But Ricard is more aware of how to do that than I am. But, but DMI basically has a child survival project where they do videos and radio spots where they get moms to bring their children to the healthcare. And they have, I think, really nice empirical support for the work they're doing. So, and Roy Head, who's the CEO who lives in London, uh, leads a great team. They're tremendously underfunded from my point of view. So Development Media International also is no longer a give well standout charity or high impact charity, but they're still very well regarded. Uh, so I think that Development Media International and Village Enterprise are two that I would highlight that are not as well known and give directly, I agree, is a, is a great organization. Yeah, I must say, I, I loved the, the idea of sort of just the radio spots. That, that one really resonated with me even prior to to reading the the more specific sort of concrete anecdote in the life he can save about the father who had the daughter who was suffering from severe malaria and they'd be basically been operating on the basis that she'd been cursed mm. and i think we in the the developed slash western world can really forget about some of the the mo's that these you know just underexposed poor malnourished people can be can be living under and you know we're, we're just so privileged i guess is what i'm getting at by the education and resources and infrastructure around us and well, people yet this- think that if you eat or drink when you're uh, when you're sick and you have diarrhea that that'll be necessarily bad for you where in fact parents are actually killing their children by yeah. starving them and by these videos or radio spots that development media international does they can educate people Earlier, I spoke about novel information and how life-changing and, and behaviorally changing it can be. This is information that people just don't have. And so that's one of the reasons that I really like Development Media International. Um, so those are organizations that come to mind uh, as underfunded, Village Enterprise and Development Media International. But I always, I mean, 
AMF, Against Malaria Foundation. I mean, all the recommended nonprofits on our website are good, but I'm trying to bring the light. Maybe some that are a little bit uh, less known. Fred Hollows is really well known in Australia and well deserved. Mm. No, that's that's great. As maybe like the final sort of few questions, then one of the things I was I was kind of interested in asking you about is the idea of how to create more of a, a culture of giving. That's you know, there's a chapter dedicated to that in the book, and I guess just one of the things that that I was thinking about is like, you know, you, you change a culture, let's say like, you know, one micro piece at a time. And I think that's maybe where some of the conversations around the isms can go wrong is we're talking about, about these more big paradigm shifts. Whereas, you know, we probably do just need to adjust and twist little knobs one at a time. And, and one of the things I was thinking about is like, it would just be so cool to see you know, something like the life you can save studied in high school, like an, and sort of tacked onto like an intro to economics course, because it is so readable, but it does give you some insight into evidence-based economic style thinking. And it just, yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure if that's too ideal, idealistic on my behalf, but it, it just seemed like it would be really cool to, to foster some of these ideas in, you know, adolescents or, or early university students in a way that so you, I think is still instructive. I agree. I mean, One for the World is a really interesting organization that's trying to do this in universities. And uh, I, you might want to have them on your show at some point to talk about what they're doing in universities. Uh, Luke, I think his last name is Freeman. I'm trying to think of the, the head of One for the World. But Ricard knows if you... Uh, or, or, or you can write to me and I'll, tomorrow right. I'll be able to give you the name, but I'm pretty Thank sure. You. So One for the World is an organization. There's a guy named John Behar, who used to be the COO of The Life You Can Save, who started something called Giving Games, which are a way of spreading mm. these ideas in universities. He'd be an interesting guy to have on your podcast also. Uh, his name is John Behar. You can reach him, through, just look at our website um, and he's there. Um, but I think that getting these ideas into curricula is a really good idea. And uh, I've been thinking we should, have a curric- we should have a required course in secondary school called global citizenship. And yeah. uh, mm-hmm. just the basics of what is, what is a good global system? You know, it could have everything to do from recycling to developing a culture of giving to help people living in the developing world, how to analyze cost effectiveness, those kinds of things. I mean, I think there's a tremendous amount of work to be done. So for people that are looking for stuff to do, there's no shortage of really good things you can do. Getting paid to do them is another question, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, Okay. So what about just some, some books that you might be able to recommend? So Perhaps let's go one more effective altruism focused book, maybe just one, maybe a fiction, um, and then just a, a good book in general that you'd like to recommend. Well, I like the book Development is Freedom by Amitriya Sen, who won the Nobel Prize in yeah. economics. It's one of my all-time favorite books. And Development is Freedom. And Sen is very well known. But if I had to recommend one book to people to read, other than Peter's The Life You Can Save, that would be the book I would recommend. I think it. I think it's really great. As far as a novel goes, um, I just read a book called Northern Spy, a novel by uh, Flynn uh, Flynn Berry, I think is her name. But I'll send you the 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 link again. 
And what I liked about it, it's not only about the struggles in Northern Ireland uh, and the IRA and the, and the problems, you know, dealing with terrorism, but also what drove the IRA, but it's a really good book about the tension between being a mother and being a worker in this, even though this woman is a spy. Um, it's, it's just really, really sensitively done about how she tries to balance her life. So that, that would be the example of a novel. Um, as far as EA stuff, I have to confess, other than Will's book uh, and Peter's books, I haven't really read a lot of EA stuff. Uh, so I really can't make a recommendation beyond you know what you all would recommend. So I would say Sen's book, Development is Freedom, um, but I think maybe the most important book to read other than the life you can say being partisan is uh, Orwell's book, 1984, and uh, looking back on the Spanish war um, or homage to Catalonia or politics in the English language. And then Chomsky's manufacturing consent. Mm. If I was looking at the books that have had the most influence on me and developing my thinking. And then there's another book by Chomsky that I don't know if it's still in print, but was the single most inf strongest influence on me back in university, which is called American Power and the New Mandarins. So uh, Chomsky's always good to read. Um, <laughs> and uh, Orwell's always good to read. Politics in the English language, for anybody who wants to write, it should be absolutely must read. So yeah, those are those are my recommendations. And I guess one of the complaints I have about the effective, effective altruist movement and effective altruists whom I've met is that they tend to not really have much of a sense of history or it feels like they were sort of born in like 1993 and they have no sense of anything. That ever, <laughs> it's not far that off ever, for us. That ever happened before. And they, they think that sort of theirs is the first social movement that ever like existed, as, even as if it's a social movement. Obviously, Peter is not at all like that. Obviously, he wasn't born in 1993 either. But I think that the, one of the reasons I would recommend some of these more kind of social science books rather than EA books is I think the more people get educated in a really proper way, the more likely they are to lead their organizations and, and have really effective thinking. In terms of leadership, the best leadership book I ever read, and it's all about business, but it's called Leadership as an Art by Max Dupree. So if anybody's looking on a traditional book on leadership. Um, right now I do, I, I read a lot of, uh, a lot of spy novels, which are completely worthless. <laughs> Entertainment. You got to get your kicks. That's fine. That's, and yeah, as I said at the start, just massive Orwell fans. I think the both of us. Um, politics in the English language is, is something that I try to revisit somewhat periodically. And I always find that there's, there's one more thing in there than what I realized last time. And I certainly haven't extracted all the value out of it yet. But he was, he was a real master of the art. I'm a, a massive Orwell fan. It's as a Good. as a sort of final easy question, just what will you do after this, Charlie? I don't think there is an after this for me. So if I seventy two, if I live coherently for another fifteen years, I think I'll be doing work at the Life You Can Save and similar. And I think I'll be spending lots of time with my family and hopefully doing a lot of walking and uh, so and watching a lot of Premier League football. 
So um, I, I really don't think there's an after this, unless you're asking me what I'm having for dinner. Yeah, sorry. I should have been more, more explicit. I did mean just like getting off this podcast and probably just speaking with Diane about uh, these dumb Australian okay, so, kids that you just chatted yeah, to. So, yeah, I'll tell Diana a little bit, but fortunately I made dinner for my whole family last night. So Diana's doing all the cooking tonight. So I was watching, again, something I'd recommend because she's brilliant. I was watching before we started, I was watching a documentary about Joan Didion who just died. And you want to talk about a good writer. I mean, she is of Orwell's quality. Mm. So if you want to look at slouching towards Bethlehem. Um, but I, one thing I do while I'm waiting for dinner when I'm not the one doing the cooking is I often watch a documentary and have a drink. And that's something that I'll probably be doing now uh, after this. I didn't realize your question was that specific, but I appreciate that. Um, as far as tomorrow goes, we're hoping to get out and start doing some more walking because the weather today was in 70 kilometer an hour winds. I think it's more dangerous to walk than not walk. Mm. Um, although my daughter told me that she had taken her, her baby out for a walk today. So fortunately a tree didn't fall on her, but I appreciate you both doing this work. And uh, I guess if I give you some advice, I would just say, keep it simple, keep it really, really simple. And I think your viewers will always appreciate it and uh, keep it really uh, interesting stories. Uh, have people with interesting stories, hopefully more interesting than mine, and, and people that are uh, who've done some really nice things that people can relate to. Because um, all the research shows that mastery models, people like Peter Singer, uh, who are just masters, don't necessarily influence people as much as just ordinary folks who are doing mm -hmm. good things. So I think have lots of those kinds of people on your show and keep up the good work. Uh, that's that's incredible thank you for that charlie we've i know i can speak on behalf of both of us we've had an incredible time and i would certainly be selfish and talk to you for many more hours but we will let you get that drink and dinner but again um, thank I'm you so always, much for it. i'm always available to chat i mean one of the things when i stopped working um at the men's warehouse the company i worked at and as i started to transition to working with peter i I thought the metaphor for my life really changed because my kids were older now. So from being a leader, I wanted to be a facilitator. And mm -hmm. sort of that's a lot of how I uh, identify uh, when I'm not just having a good time, which I told you I like to do, but um, I have a good time um, facilitating what other people want to do, assuming I agree with their values. So don't hesitate to, uh, to call on me or, or just uh, send me an email and say, hey, I'd like to chat about this. I'm more than happy to if I have anything to offer and uh, yeah. I'd like to see you when I come to Melbourne. Uh, that would be great. You can indoctrinate us in effective hedonism. <laughs> yeah. Well, we can certainly start with a drink. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank All you. Right. That's, uh, we'll definitely take you up on that. And we thank you so much for your time again. And we'll be speaking soon, Charlie. All right. Take care. All right. Thank take you. care. Bye. And that's all we have for today. We thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed the episode, we would love it if you could leave a rating, review, or even share it with a friend. If you have any thoughts, you can send an email to conduit.aus at gmail.com. Thanks again, and we'll speak with you next week.